Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by SATC Solutions L3C. You can connect with us on Instagram or Twitter where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. For more information, including our email, visit us online at satcsolutions.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Bridging Chicago on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Bridging Chicago. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast here in our season four opener. And we're really excited to be joined today by Terry Gant. He is the owner of Third Coast Comics. It's located in Rogers Park here in Chicago. And Terry, we're really excited to talk to you about comics. I did warn Terry before we started that though I've had some interest in comics and um, and I've heard, uh, I have a lot of friends who, who do read. Uh, I, I don't really know much about them myself. And so we're gonna, we're gonna learn together, but, uh, but we have a great teacher in Terry again. So thanks for joining us today. Hey, no problem, glad to be here. So Terry, tell me about where you're from. Are you from Chicago or did you come here from somewhere I'm, else? No, I'm totally, I'm from Chicago. I'm from the South side of Chicago. I grew up in South Shore. And okay. it's sort of like, um, like I, my store is in Rogers Park now. And it's kind of funny because my store ended up right around the corner from like one of the first comic shops I'd ever been to when I was a kid. Where I grew up, when I started collecting, there was just not that many places actually. Well, I'll back up. There were lots of places to buy comics because you could buy them from grocery stores. Or you could buy them from newsstands, right? The, yeah. the direct market model that we have now didn't exist. It wasn't the only way that you can get comics. You can get comics. They were all over the place, which is why the circulation was so wide, right? Lots of people grew up reading comics and, and were into the, the hobby of collecting them when I was a kid in like the 70s and 80s until the direct market came along and, and it basically cut out um, – all of these sort of extra avenues of getting comics like your local drugstore, your grocery store, your fruit stands and all that kind of thing. It ended that and the only place you can get comics from were comic books specialty stores like I have right now. But the problem with that was growing up in South Shore, you know, there weren't that many around. There were almost none. You had to I had to go to like Evergreen Park to buy comics. Like that was when I was like in high school. Or come all the way up to like Devon and Broadway or Devon and Sheridan to go to a store called Larry's comic shop and get comics there. And that was like, that had to be like a Saturday, right? Like you couldn't do that after school because I'm, I grew up 7,400 South and 3,100 East. Right. So there's just no way you're going to do that in an hour. Right. That's an right. all day trip. If you're doing that on a train, you know, it wasn't like my, my mom was like, let's get in the car and let's drive an hour to go buy comics. She wouldn't, she wasn't, that wasn't her thing. You know, it was yeah. like, I was on my own to do that. So yeah, like now I have a comic shop that's on the north side, but there are lots of comic shops on the north side now. Uh, lots of people kind of grew up with the hobby in a different sort of way because now it's all specialty stores. And that just means that you're going to find like your, your I find the comic market kind of segmented, right? I get, a, there's a lot of people, a lot more people now that I meet who are like you, who are a little curious. They have friends who are into it, but they themselves never got into it. And it's because by the yeah. time you were growing up, it would have had to be something that you would have had to trip over. Like in order for you to like probably find yourself into it, as opposed to if you were born 20 years sooner, you wouldn't have been able to escape it. You know, it would have been like Marvel movies. You know what I mean? Like everywhere you looked, 
there would have been some superhero person at a reasonable price, right? Like, and someone's practically put the comic in your hand just to like get you to sit down somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, that's what yeah. it used to be like. Okay, that made me think of a question that I had okay. that I wanted to ask you. Is is there a difference between comics and graphic novels, or are they the same word for? So, okay, <laughs> this is a good question. Um, this, you know how sometimes things start out with a meaning, but because of the way people interact with a word or interact with an expression, its meaning changes, right? The, the official rule between comic book and graphic novel is comic books are monthly periodicals produced every four, four weeks or so, right? When you pick one up, it's kind of flimsy, floppy. Uh, floppy. Mm-hmm. We actually refer to them as floppies. They have staples in the spine. That's a comic book, right? But a graphic novel, a graphic novel usually is a uh, one comic story, something just told, right, in one go, and usually has like a, a bound spine, right? So like not not staple. Do you know what I mean? Like so, okay. if you were gonna yeah, yeah. Yeah. go with a, a, you're gonna go with a regular comic book. You've got 23 pages, a monthly periodical. But if you go with a graphic novel, who knows? Somebody might produce one every year, every five years. Whenever an artist wants to, you know, chooses to put a product out there, they'll do it. Their graphic novel is the book they chose with the story they chose to tell in one form. Here it is. Now there's a thing called the trade paperback, which is like a collected version of comics. So it takes, it didn't used to be this way, but now it takes about five issues to complete one story. So five floppy comics go into one book. That's a trade paperback, but we use it interchangeably with graphic novel because at this point, so many people call it a graphic novel. We may as well just keep calling it a graphic novel. Yeah. It's almost like why fight it? If, if you're just, to me, if you're trying to get people into the hobby or just uh, sort of feed their interests, you don't want to bog them down with terms that just honestly don't make sense to them. You know, yeah. comics are comics, graphic novels are graphic novels, and they're both the same thing, right? Because it's just easier that way. Okay. That, you know, in, in comics, yeah, in comics, those of us who are like retailers or who active, who are actively in it, we would never look at an issue of the X-Men and go graphic novel, right? But yeah. I have people who will pick up an issue of the X-Men or two, and then they'll pick up Watchmen, right? And then they'll pick up My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris, right? So those three things are all technically three different things. But if somebody said, I went to the graphic novel store and this is what I bought, right? We're just happy they did it, yeah. you know? Right. Yeah. Okay, you explained it well because I I think I understand. So <laughs> thanks for clarifying. I didn't want to say the wrong thing because I know. But, uh, I'm yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, there are those people out there who it needs to be just so. Like to me, yeah, I feel like my purpose is to expand the hobby and 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 feed that interest. And I don't want to like I don't want to shut the door in somebody's face because they just didn't know one or two terms. That they really right. didn't even need to know. They didn't need to know them at all. So, you know, we can keep it. Yeah. So tell me about how this passion came for you, because obviously it started when you were young, but like for you being a young kid, what was it like for you to get a new comic or graphic novel? I mean, what did that, how did that make you feel? And, and how did you grow your passion in that? Well, okay. So the story of this is that when I was like in single digit years, right? Um, for a good chunk of time, I lived in Houston, Texas. My mom was in Houston, Texas with me. My dad was here in Chicago. At that point in time, I thought the only two places you could ever buy a comic book were 7-Eleven and an airport. 
because the only times I ever saw comic books were the 7-Eleven across the street from our apartment complex and the airport, either at Houston's airport or O'Hare when I was doing a visit with my dad, right? Or vice versa. Yeah. Like, and, and it wasn't that we were doing family trips together. Some of those times I was on the plane by myself being sent to the other parent. So the idea was in the airport, somebody would say to me, Terry, if you don't give any of the flight attendants any problems, I'll buy you these comics and you can just read these comics on the plane. Cool. Great. That's what I did. Right. I didn't know that you could get comics anyplace else other than the 7-Eleven or an airport until my parents got together here in Chicago and we were living in South Shore and I was going to the grocery store with my mom and I just happened to look over at this newsstand we passed and I saw like this, like, I don't know, like uh, maybe like four feet, just through the narrow door, I saw four feet high by like, well, maybe like six feet high by four feet wide, just comic books held onto a rack with like like twine and i was like holy what the heck how is that even possible like they have comic books and at that point they only cost like you know 30 cents or something like that so my mom was like you know okay here's a little bit of money you got a few comics you should be happy now not realizing that i'm gonna want to go back every day right (laughs) because to me like it's only 30 cents 35 cents or something like that right like it's only a quarter like you know as a kid if you had, if I had five bucks, I would spend all five bucks on comics. My mom's thinking was like, don't you have enough of those? And I was like, don't you know, they keep putting out more. <laughs> like, how could you stop? Right. Yeah, and she yeah. was like, I didn't, you know, the great battle began when I was a kid. It was like, I need X amount of money to go buy a new comics. How much do you need? I would tell her, she'd be like, when I was a kid, comics cost 12 cents. And I was like, I can't believe comics ever were so inexpensive. Right now, an average cover, a regular comic book is like four bucks. Right, like wow. I always told myself, I'd stop collecting comics if comics ever reached like you know three or four bucks. You know, but if you're yeah. in, yeah. you're in. And I would just whatever money I could get, however I could get it, I would just like that's what I would do. I would go to that 79th and Yates. I would go to that newsstand that was there. So I set up a store called Food Basket. I would buy my comics, then do whatever grocery shop my mom asked me to do. But I made sure comics were a part of it. And then I started paying attention, like where else in the neighborhood there were comics if there ever were any. I think it's it's possible that my grandparents only really saw me as much as they did because two blocks away from them was a newsstand that sold different comics than the one by my house, right? And they were in South Shore too, but it was like, they were like, you know, maybe two miles away. So I started realizing the newsstands and the grocery stores and the fruit stands and the little mom and pod joints, all of them sold comics, but they also, different. they all picked different things to order. Right. So the Korean lady who had the fruit stand on 73rd and Jeffrey would have no idea that like the Justice League was as good a comic as Firestorm. But like she would basically order them both, but she might order Fantastic Four. Right. So if I wanted Fantastic Four, I had to go to a different spot. So whatever whatever title you saw somewhere, you went back there for that particular title. Right. So I had this map, this map in my head of like nine or ten places to go every month to hit them up. Right. Wow. To make sure I was getting the full comics for my collection, right? Yeah. There were times in which, you know, like I meant like any other kid, right? I'm going to be in trouble for just whatever you get in trouble, like running the streets with your friends and doing all that, right? But when there was none of that to do, it was comics time, right? So, and yeah. like, and for me, it was like one of those things where I didn't, I was a nerdy kid and I was in a Dungeons and Dragons and, and I'm an artist. So if my friends were into that thing, we could do that. But like, it, it was more fun to me if I can get them into comics, 
then I can make them go with me to buy. Like now we're going to all get comics. That was the thing I really wanted to do. And that's until yeah. basically the industry messed itself up by deciding that you had to be a specialty store, which made it more of like an elitist kind of thing. And, and just to me stunted the hobby for the next 30 years. You know? Yeah. Tell me about the, the sort of social interaction around the comics. Did you, did you have a lot of friends that were into them or were you able to get a lot of friends into them? And then did you, I had a, a few. Of, like, I, I probably had, yeah, I probably had more. So I was an art major in high school. And at that point, just about half the class were in the comics, right? But the other cl- other half of the class were in the fine arts. So you could make, you, it's easy to make friends with that group of people because you're all into different sorts of things. And then there's that, like, that teenage judgment. Like, I'm, I'm into comics about teenagers with superpowers, right? But my other friends might be into, like, Savage Sword of Conan and the Hulk. They needed more visceral power fantasies than I was reading, right? But I'd also discovered at this point in time that there were more than American comics out there, which was a thing I'm not sure I was entirely ready for, right? There's a whole European model of comics. There's a Japanese model of comics. There are the French and the Italians who do comics differently. The the 80s is where I discovered that was a thing, right? So, like, now I'm the kid coming to class and I'm bringing, like, you know, uh, Jean Giraud or Mobius. Um, I'm bringing um, Akira. I'm bringing like these, these, th- I'm discovering that there were independent comic companies that weren't Marvel at DC, one of which was even based here in Evanston where I live, right? Like I'm discovering these guys' comics at different places, right? And then bringing them to school and being like, look at this. And like the, the, the things are more mature. The art was like, like, like just top notch. Like it was really interesting to have friends who were into it that you could really like turn on to something and then you guys could like in- evolve your own art styles with this kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that there were independent. The independent comic scene in the '80s was phenomenal, and a lot of those guys are still working now, you know. And we're getting back to where the the market itself can be as diverse in terms of product and in terms of in terms of creator as well. But it took a while, you know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of guys start a comic book studio or a comic book publishing interest, but they don't know a lot about the business side of it. And it's the business side that you got to get right, otherwise. You produce comics for six months and then you're out of business and there's a whole bunch of great stuff that no one's ever going to get to see. Yeah. That happened a lot. Okay. You mentioned that you studied fine arts in high school. Um, yeah, I was, a, I was visual communications. Yeah, that was my major in high school. Okay. With the idea basically okay. is to teach us how to get a job in advertising. Okay. <laughs> As teenagers. So I went to a school of 17 people, so we didn't have majors in high school. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, can you expand <laughs> were, on that a little bit it, for me? Yeah. I'm well, like, wait, you had a major? <laughs> so yeah, in my, in my, I went to Chicago Vocational High School. Now it's called okay. Chicago Vocational Career Academy or CVS, which is confusing to a lot of people because it sounds like the pharmacy. The pharmacy wasn't here in Chicago when I went to that school. Um, okay. I went to CVS. On 87th and Jeffrey, and it was a vocational school. It wasn't like a traditional liberal arts school. So some of my friends were, uh, they majored in auto mechanics or welding or sheet metal or like I had a, I had one class that was about foundry work, like how to like pour molten metal into a form and make a skillet, you know? And the idea was you had a choice coming out of this particular school. You can come out of this school and if you do the ROTC program, you can go into the military uh, or you can go into a trade or you can go to college. Right. And my thinking was as an art major, I would uh, I just wanted some place where four or five hours a day I could do art. Right. And my goal was to go to art college. Right. That was my thinking about it. Um, The programs were all largely set up so that you you would have skills enough 
that you can like go into some kind of apprenticeship or something like that, right? And the way my brain worked, I didn't get any of that. I didn't understand that I was actually kind of getting a leg up and what I needed to do was find somebody out there who was already doing this thing and attach myself to that institution. But by the time I'm going to high school in like 1983 to 87 or 88, like that model for kids on the South side was largely going away. It was disappearing. Right. Like I was, my generation of kids were like at the end of you, you had options to go into a trade or college or whatever. And at the beginning of it has to be college or you're screwed. Right. Because there were no, there was no, like, I remember when I left high school, uh, it was my first experience with how much college actually costs. Right. Because I heard all these stories from people, the generation above mine who were like, yeah, I just paid my way through school. I worked. It's good. I like, I'll get a job, whatever, you know? Um, And then when I have enough money, I'll I'll start paying for classes. And, And I remember enrolling in classes at one particular school. And, and when I saw that tuition bill, I was like, Ooh, I better do a lot more working. I'm not sure this, how did how did anyone do this? And it was like the eighties was where it seemed to change where it was like now next to impossible for you to, you know, I, I don't know. I had two jobs. A lot of times I played in bands at night, you know, like my money was meant to be like, save it for tuition, but it also had to be rent bills, like food, you know? So then all my art doing was I'm doing art at night. I'm, I'm playing bands at night. I'm working during the day, doing whatever jobs I got to come my way. And I eventually ended up working in a comic book store, which is where I got really closer to the retail end of it. And that put that in the back of my head, that there was a different way to do this. Yeah. I assume during this time, your parents were pretty supportive of the art stuff and, and you going into art. The art they industry. were. So, so it's a yes and a no. Like my mom would have preferred that I went into something that would pay me actual money. Right. So it wasn't about being not, it wasn't that she wasn't supportive of my art. She was supportive of my art, but she also saw that as a path to being broke and she's not wrong. Right. Like it's not, it's not the path to money. Right. Her thinking was everyone that she knew from her generation had to get a job making X amount. They raised kids, right. They had, they had to pay rent. They had to pay bills. They had to support someone somewhere. Who knows how many kids a black man ends up with in this town? You know, <laughs> you just walk out of the house and you have babies. It just happens to all these black men. You're going to need a job, man. You know, something that pays you actual money. So get a, get, a, yeah. get a skill. Learn a trade. That's why she pushed me to go to that school is she was thinking that I would do computer science or something, which I didn't okay. I didn't want to do going into high school. But like looking back, by the time that you're, you know, like, I don't know, at this point, everybody has some some small amount of IT skill, almost no matter what. At this point, if you're below the age of 40, right, you, it, you, it's in your blood. You know what I mean? But back then, it wasn't, you know? And it wasn't really what I wanted, so I pushed for the art thing. My dad was kind of like, on the surface he was at, let that kid do whatever he wants to do as long as it's a positive thing. But then mm-hmm. when I walk away, he'd be like, I really hope he gets some job where he can make actual money. <laughs> Please don't let him start. <laughs> You know, and it was that my dad had the, like there's a lot of pride, right? Like my dad was yeah. a firefighter, and 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 you know his whole he was the oldest of his of his siblings, and his whole thing was like trying to like do what he had to do to like take care of people, right? But also like never be able to tell anybody no. So it was don't don't go to work to pay for college. I'll pay for college. But then when you realize, and in his own family model. He's the person everybody's looking to to help them out. I'm not exactly the next on the totem pole, right? Like, this is a problem. 
You know, so yeah. I was thinking I'm going to be basically on my own, having to figure this out for myself. And that's just what I'm going to do, which is how I ended up doing a lot of what I did. You know, like I just, you know, my, my view of the universe in general is relax, you know, and just take care of what you can take care of, you know, but have have some form of plan. Right. And then write that plan in pencil, you know, and then do what you got to do. You know, like it's kind of how it is. You yeah. Know? Yeah, they yeah, weren't. They I weren't. Could. They weren't unsupportive. They just didn't always understand it, especially given the kind of art I was into, right? Like drawing comic books wasn't like a thing that they thought was a career. You know, drawing it was a hobby. Like it wasn't a career. And to me, it was like, how do I make this a career? That's what I wanted yeah. to do. I wanted to draw comics. Yeah. Interesting. Um, you mentioned living on the south side, and I know for a lot of people, when they think about the south side, there's automatically a, a stigma or there's certain sure. things that you think about. And um, I know we've had the opportunity to talk to a few guests who have lived on either the South or the West side or, or worked out there. Uh, I would like to get your take on, on what the South side means to you or what the community is like for people who haven't visited there. So I think that it's, it's, it's kind of funny, right? Like I grew up on the South side before like the crack epidemic and the heroin spike amongst all age groups was so massive that people were having to murder each other in the streets over it. Right. Like the, the urban trouble that we had when I was growing up was, it was there were definitely gangs, but that was, that was an everyday occurrence, but that was like, you weren't being shot. You were just being jumped, right? You'd be, you might be robbed, but like, no, there was no gunplay. Right. Drive bys weren't a thing. You know, it was more like people who are poor and and don't see a future and are desperate, who are packed into tight spaces, do desperate, you know, and like it wasn't it was it was rough at times where I lived, but like it wasn't like you perceive it to be now. And my 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 view of that is that. Chicago has done a bang up job on marketing itself as a city that is only 10 miles wide, right? Mm. Like it to, to the outsider, Chicago exists from basically like Madison Avenue to like, you know, Howard street. It yeah. exists from the lake to about, you know, Western or California, Do you know, yeah. like, like yeah, yeah. as, as young professionals with a little bit of cash get priced out of, your, your Lincoln Parks, they move into Wicker Park, then they move into uh, Humble Park or Logan Square, Bucktown, into Avondale, right? They, that, that push north and west is what Chicago has marketed to so many people who came here for school and stayed, right, while effectively creating a wall in our minds that there they'd be dragons if you got to go south of Roosevelt Road, right? Mm. But the truth of it is that's only until Chicago can find a way to turn the low end back into Bronzeville, right? Can find a way to to remarket these these sort of like no fly zones of, of Southside neighborhoods, right? And my mom is from 38th and Prairie, right? Which is the Bronzeville area, but it was only Bronzeville before her generation got there, right? Yeah, it wasn't Bronzeville anymore once all the actual like. Um, once the once the bottom fell out of the economy, right, and the bottom falling out by uh, our society removing the jobs that caused the Great Migration, 
right? We, we eliminate those jobs and then we don't invest in the community. Now what do we got, right? Now we got nothing but desperation. Bronzeville becomes the low end, right? And it's only in the last, what was it, like 20 years or so that now there's all this like investiture in real estate and investiture in, 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 uh, in, in infrastructure. These things now exist on the South side and they exist to attract people who are priced out of or squeezed on the North side. So now the word is it's safe to go south of the museum campus, right? It's it's funny to me because when I, um, every year in Chicago, there's a big comic book convention that descends upon our city called C2E2, the Chicago Comic Book and Entertain, uh, Entertainment Expo. And that happens at McCormick Place. And when I'm there, I can see just the wide-eyed expressions of all the people who've never been this far south but have lived in Chicago for 15 years, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I have to ask like people sometimes, well, have you ever been to the Museum of Science and Industry? And if they say yes, I say, how'd you get there? Right? Because I'm curious, right? Like the Museum of Science and Industry is a fantastic place in Hyde Park. It's got that campus is phenomenal, right? It's got a rich Chicago history. But if you're a Northsider, there's some realities you're going to have to deal with to get to the Museum of Science and Industry if you're not driving. Right. You know? And for some people, that will be the only time they've driven that far south on Lakeshore Drive if they've done it. And if they take public transportation, I was talking to a friend of mine just Saturday who's from France. He's a French guy. He's also a comic book artist. I was talking to him, and he was like, yeah, it was it was really weird because I didn't – he said he didn't really understand where all the other people went who were on the train with him, right? Suddenly, there was an entirely different group of people on the train with him, meaning he realized – Suddenly all the white people were gone. There are black people everywhere. And he was like, wait, where'd all the white people go? Why wouldn't they be going to this museum too? Right? Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. like, man, what he didn't understand was there's plenty of white people by the museum, but they live in Hyde Park. Yeah. Right? It's that right. it's like you have to have a Star Trek technology to like get you from downtown into Hyde Park because you're avoiding this other zone and you don't even know why you're avoiding it. You know, you've been told to avoid it, but what are you missing if you do? You're missing great food, right? You're missing some pretty vibrant culture and vibrant people and amazing architecture and a rich history, right? Like, it, it just doesn't have a Cubs logo on it, right? Right? Like, that's kind right. of it. It's it's that there's no one, there's 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 been a, a, a almost subconscious marketing effort, but it's very conscious in Chicago. It's like, it's on purpose, you know? Yeah. Like, the way one area or two areas, the west side, roped off, right? Like, we always used to say back in the day, and this is before really even having a grasp, a firm grasp on how the city is built, we would talk about the west side of Chicago and the Michael Jordan Bulls era, and that the Bulls were playing at Chicago Stadium when Michael Jordan got here. Chicago Stadium since been knocked down. We built the United Center right across the street. We could see that slowly but surely, all this in, uh, investments now happening in the area around the United Center that wasn't there when it was just a Chicago stadium before Michael Jordan got here. And it was absolutely the West side. What we couldn't figure out was, man, what are you going to do? Because by the time any of this matters, Michael Jordan will be long gone. Right. right? At least if you're like, if you're in Wrigleyville, like the field attracts people, even when there's no games being played. Right. The United Center doesn't have that. And in order to pull that off, you got to be pretty cutthroat about how you view people and how you view a society, right? And that's kind of what's happened down there, right? Like, it's it's that, 
all right, we're just going to knock that thing down. Sorry, you used to live there, but now something else is going to happen. Hey, you, you're, you, you've been out of law school for a year or two. Where do you want to live? Do you want to live near these things? And then boom, there you go. Your neighborhood's changing. You know, yeah. And it's not even, we, we'll say your neighborhood's changing, but your neighborhood didn't change. A new neighborhood was built on top of your neighborhood. Wow, yeah. You know? Yeah. The neighborhood changes in places like Wicker Park and Humble Park. It looks roughly the same as it always looked, right? But there are just people there who got there just now and they they displaced, right? Folks who may have been there for 30, 40, 50 years, right? In places like the West Side, it's more like the things that used to be there just aren't there and something different's there altogether. And you're displaced from it, right? Different issue. Like the South Side, I see less of that, right, when I go back. The West Side is an entirely different reclamation project, you know, in an odd yeah. sort of way. Oh, and as, as, a, as a comics retailer, I think about it only in that I have to kind of have this map of where the comic shops are, right? Yeah. If you look at it, if you Google, like, comic book stores in Chicago, all these little dots, these pens are going to pop up all over the North Side. There'll be a few on the South Side. I'm the only black comic shop owner in Chicago. You know, there was a point when I was the only one in the Midwest, Right. But in Chicago, there are a lot of people who are, are curious about how to do this, but the sort of like the there's a, a, a gap in knowledge and, and, and we have become more risk averse in terms of like people who open the kind of people who open retail locations, open businesses in general. Right. We've become a risk averse culture over the last 15 years. So like I'm the only one, you know, like that's that's a thing. It's I, I couldn't. There was a point like I could probably do it. In the, if I had to do it on the south side now, I could think of three neighborhoods I could pull this off in. Right. Yeah. But I, that's a risk I couldn't take, given who my primary market has to be. You know, it's it's always so surprising to me when I hear statements that sort of begin with, you know, in 2021 to be able to say I'm the only black blank. You know, yes. it, it's it's crazy to think about because people like to think about how far we've come. But yeah. I think as people of color, we, we have to think about how far we have yet to go. And yeah. in 2021, for someone to be able to say, I'm the only black anything is like, it really puts it's wild, right? Yeah. yeah, it's it's just wild. And it's like, how does that, how how is that possible? And then how does that change? It, it just is, it's kind of mind blowing to me. If it wasn't, if it wasn't for like one college product, project when I was in school, if it was for this one college project, I, I wouldn't be doing it. There's, mm -hmm. I, there still wouldn't be one. Right. And it was that I had a class when I was taking, I, I was working, I was at DePaul and I was working there and I was also going to school there. And I had a class that was basically like a uh, disaster preparedness for business. How do you do data recovery if a disaster fall befalls your business? Right. And part of the project that I had to do was create a business from the ground up and then Let's pretend a flood or a tornado hit it. And then how do you get yourself up and running? How fast can you do it? Right. Mm -hmm. What is your plan to do that? You know, what is, wh how, how is your data stored? How is, how are your physical things protected? Right. How fast can you get yourself back where you need to be and up and running no matter how bad the thing was. Right. And mm -hmm. so I, um, I made this fake comic shop and at the time I made the fake comic shop, I also had all these other like, uh, things that aren't a part of my business model now, but were with my fake shop. And I built it all out and I spent weeks on this thing. And I showed it to a couple of friends because it was like, you know, you've seen people, these high-end spreadsheets that all have like a hundred tabs that are all connected. I did all that. 
And friends were like, man, if this comic shop existed, I'd shop at it. And the reason they were saying that was the industry had hit a point in which it was clear that the only people really being catered to were like cis white males. And a lot of people I knew weren't that. And they weren't going into comic shops because they could see that they weren't they weren't exactly welcome. Right. They weren't Mm -hmm. discouraged, but they certainly weren't encouraged. And by product line, it stores would carry half the time. Even just by product line, this wasn't spaces meant for them, not designed for them, not designed with them in mind. And what I'd kind of come up with, I'd gone so far, they could say, wow, like, I'll start going to comic shops again if a place like this existed. So then I was like, okay, well, what does it take to do that then, right? And I did a little research and I found out what it took and was like, okay, well, let's, let's see what happens, you know? So I started an online comic store. And the idea was to sell graphic novels over the internet via like eBay or something like that, run a blog. And I was already doing these uh, comic book discussion groups, like, you know, once a month or so, like in a bar near one of the Paul campuses and people were coming out to hang out and talk comics there. So then it became me taking comic book orders at those events, filling the comic book orders, coming to the next event with the comics people ordered, right? And for like three years, I built up a customer base, right, of like just people that I, you know, hung out with in in these discussion groups. But then also, because I was still in school, I had papers to write. So I go to my local bar, work on my papers, and then the bartenders were like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm also filling out a comic book order. And they were like, do you have Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Because Buffy had just gone from television to graphic novel, right? And they'd been cut off. These people were like, now they, they couldn't get their Buffy fix. So I was like, I can get you Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I had a whole string of bartenders who were like, give me Buffy. So now I'm coming in to work on my papers, do my comic book order, and deliver my bartenders their Buffy comics. Wow. Then people at the bar would be like, what just happened? Because I, I push a package across the bar. They would hand me money. And people would go, what was that? What just happened? They are like a drug deal. I was like, well, it kind of is, kind of isn't, you know? <laughs> so now random people in bars are like, wait, you selling comic books in bars? Sure. More customers. I would just, you know, my wife and I would just drive the customers' houses, run up the stairs, give them comics, come back. Yeah, it was that's what it was like. And I did that for about three years until I think we, we kind of buried two cars. You know, it's a lot of driving and like, you know, running around on a Saturday afternoon, you know. Yeah. And we never we couldn't have like a, a good running car. So that became the part of the business I, I like the least. I hate chasing people down for money. Like, I, I want no job ever where I have to chase people for money. I don't want to do that ever. So yeah. the idea to become a brick and mortar was simply so that people had a place to come to buy the comics and give me money without me having to go to them. Right. Yeah. And in 2008, that's what I did. And that transition, was that scary? Was it exciting? Was it a lot of, it was I mean, scary. Sure it, was of things, but. it was scary that I, I quit a job that I'd had <laughs> I quit my university job that I'd had for like nine or 10 years. Right. But like mm-hmm. I got, a, I got my degree and signed a lease within like a month. Right. So it was like, okay, this is real. This is happening. You know, yeah. if we don't do it, I don't know if I can. Right. Like if I, if I have to wait three more years, who knows, what, what it's going to be like, you know, what, who knows if the situation's right for it. I won't know if I can actually make this thing work unless I do the thing. So yeah, it was terrifying, right? It still is in a way because like what we didn't know was we didn't know in 2008, the economy was going to tank, right? Mm-hmm. 
We didn't know it would also be a roller coaster while doing it. I didn't have a firm grasp of like, I mean, I searched different neighborhoods for like watching rent, rental rates and square footage and all this kind of stuff. I didn't yeah. know uh, what those things were going to be like. I did, We didn't know social media would take off the way that it did. Right. There are a lot of things that impacted our business. Right. That like looking back at it, I might have approached something slightly differently. Had we known, like if I had to open a comic shop tomorrow, there's absolutely different ways I might do a few things versus the way you end up doing it when you're just kind of like just making it work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I also I didn't know if I'd be open for a year. I didn't I didn't know I'd be open about 12 years later. Right. Who knew? Yeah. 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 And I'm sure that has helped a lot with times like today where we're yeah. in a world where things are finally starting to open up a little bit here in Chicago and, and people can start to go places safely again. Um, and, and I saw that your shop is open again, obviously limited capacity. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, we're, we're limited to two people. I had to, well, we're posted to people. My shop is small. So getting four people in there is a squeeze as it is. Right. But we're definitely limited to two people. The, the thing that I did, my biggest adjustment because of COVID is I started this initiative called chef's choice where mm-hmm. You, who don't read comics, but you're graphic novel curious, would say to me, you would just tell me what your general reading interests are, what your favorite TV shows or movies were, and just give me a budget. And then I pick the graphic novels for you and ship them to you, right? So okay. that way you don't have to worry about what you don't know. You already know what you do like, right? Yeah. So I'm just yeah. like, okay, give it to me. What 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 t- what are your what what's your favorite book? What was the last great book you read? What was the last good TV show that you binged? Like, what kind of things are you looking for? And then from my selection or the knowledge I have of what is possible to get, and depending on your budget, like if you were to say 80 bucks, I can get you five great graphic novels for 80 bucks, right? You'd be set for like, you know, the spring, you know? (laughs) So people have been doing that. So like I've had less people, my walk-up has been destroyed by COVID, right? But there are people I've never met before who will email me. And this is, I don't even have an e-commerce site. Right. My, my, my email address is out there. You find me on social media, Terry at thirdcoastcomics.com. And then you just say, hey, look, I'm looking for a chef's choice. And it could be for you. It could be for a partner, a friend. It could be for, for kids. It could be for nephews, nieces. Like this is what people are doing. Right. Yeah. And then they just give me the budget and then I shoot them an invoice as, as a response to the email. Here's the invoice. They pay that. And depending on like some people will say, you know, I never read Watchmen. I like to read that. And I like to read like I heard that. Uh, some other TV show was a comic book. I like to read that too. Great, that's fifty bucks, right? Or they'll say, you know what? My, I, I get there's an order I got to prep tomorrow that is like uh, a comic for a husband, comic for a wife, comic for a five year old, right? Uh, they gave me a budget, and I know these people because they used to be they used to live in a neighborhood, but now they live in Bridgeport. Um, they haven't been physically in the shop since before COVID, right? Yeah. But like the kids growing up, right? So now they're like, I need something that can entertain this kid. That's, you know, not as scary as these things. Right. right. And I, you know, so then I got to I got to be like, OK, got you. I, I have an idea what I can do. Right. And then we just figure out I'll add the shipping and all that stuff and I just send it. Yeah. You know, that makes me think I, I watched like the first few seasons, not seasons, the first few episodes of Riverdale, which okay. I heard is based off the comic. I don't it's based on the Archie's comic. It's, it's based on the Archie's comic, but Riverdale is a modern telling of the Archie comics, right? Okay. So it's not based on the Riverdale comic. The Riverdale comic is inspired by the show, okay. right? 
So okay. I wouldn't even say, Don, I, I wouldn't suggest reading the Riverdale comic. I would say if you like Riverdale, it's like you like murderous teen drama. Great. Got you. Murderous teen drama. What's your budget? And then send you a few things that fit murderous, you know, teen drama. Do is it is it OK if there's a supernatural bent or not? Right. And then that gives me an idea where to go, because already right now I can think of like good murderous teen drama books. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there we go. It's, it's, that's how easy it is. You just say, and hey, it's and it's, and it's that way because thanks to COVID, right? I can't like there's there's less people walking in the door who know what they want in the first place. And I've, what I've learned over the last several years is I spent a lot of time trying to turn people on to something that I thought was good, right? Yeah. If I get um, I don't know 15 new titles a week in terms of graphic novel and to say Marvel, DC, Image Comics, Dark Horse, Boom Studios. If these guys start up, you know, something like, you know, 20, 30 new titles a month, I'm going to figure out the ones that are good. But as I'm trying to tell you that the new storyline in Batman is awesome, what I'm doing to everyone else is telling them that if they don't like Batman, they should tune out right now. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So, like, yeah. I spend a lot of time, and I think a lot of other shops do this, they spend a lot of time trying to sell a thing that is on their shelf to a to a person they believe should like it instead of selling the person they're talking to the thing that they like yeah right it doesn't matter what's on my shelf it matters what you like right and can i match that right. to something that i've already got either in inventory or in the back of my head that i can get from a distributor really quick and that's why um i think it's, it's shifted a bit for me and and I, I like this aspect of what i do now i'm basically glorified personal shopper to the nerds and and i like that yeah. You know, and what I would have done differently, I wish I'd have done this at the beginning. And I did do it for some people, right? Like I have, um, this is something, uh, I have my, do you know Amy Guth? If you, do you know Amy Guth? She's a WGN Cranes. She does Cranes, uh, like the Daily Gist for Cranes Radio or Cranes Business now. Okay. Um, she's a radio personality here in Chicago. She's great. She's phenomenal. Um, but for a long time, um, she did a Chicago themed kind of like, uh, um, radio show for WGN and it was a late night slot. So sometimes she would have me come in when there's like something topical and nerdy. Right. And what she remembered was calling me up and saying, I'm coming up to the comic shop. Um, I don't really know exactly what I want, but if you could like lay out some options for me, that'd be great. And then what I would do is I would just set up a table, throw a red tablecloth over it and just put out a whole selection of things in different categories. Right. And then she would go from the categories and find things she actually liked. And she thought, man, this is a great service. You should do this yeah. all the time. And I was thinking, if I set this table up in my shop all the time, it's going to take up a crap ton of space. <laughs> right? I wasn't thinking to like change the space to make that a thing. But other things that I did was I would do just about anything to get someone into the shop. So I would uh, run an event I called, um, I did several of these. One was called like Wine and Comics where I would match wines to graphic novels, right? Oh. I did uh, whiskey and comics, and I would match whiskey, bourbon, and scotch to comics. So if you're, if you're a wine drinker and you were like a, you were a white Zinfandel drinker, right? Well, you don't need to be reading Hellboy or drinking that stuff, right? We're going to go with something a little lighter, something that seems kind of fresh, right? It's going to be, it's going to be fun, right? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna relax with this. You're going to kick back, but you're going to be in a good mood when you're done with it. But if you're a Shiraz or a Tempranillo drinker, I need to have something that matches 
whatever the hell's going on in there. Like it can't now, now we can get into our Hellboys, Gideon Falls. We can go into some darker stuff here, right? Because at this point, like you've already done all the, the, the nice, nice kind of rays of sunshine kind of reading you ever want to do. Now you're, you're okay seeing some blood on somebody's hands, right? And I would do those once a year. Um, it was either the, I would do the wine one, I'd do the whiskey one. I did chili cook-offs. I did a pie bake-off. Like, I had karaoke nights. I would do all these different things because they were designed to get new people into the shop to see yeah. what we had going on. And that helped us build a community, right? Like, I'm known for doing a bunch of different things. The trick there is you find yourself at some point selling, pushing books to the same community of people, Right? And what I need to have happen is expanding the community of people without having to also get them drunk. Right? Right. Well, and, Which is... I mean, sometimes that's, that's not a bad thing. Not a bad, right, right. But that's where you find yourself. You find, you find yourself in a, where it's like, huh, the only way this really gets expanded is if I change a service. Right? Yeah. Like, the yeah, mo- yeah. this is where we're at. This gets you so far, right? So personal shopper, here we come, you know? Because yeah. now that there's COVID, I can't do any events. Right. I've had no well, events think, for a year. One of the things that I've seen in, in our guests over the last year, especially, is how good local business owners and small business owners are at adapting to change. Where, yeah, right. it's going to affect them probably in a very different and very heavy, much heavier way than than the chains or the corporations or the large corporations, it's going to affect you. But what I've seen out of so many local business owners is how good they are at adapting to change. And it's kind of that if you've made the decision to go into business to begin with and to to take on that risk, they fight to to stay in business and and they keep doing whatever they have to do to not only keep the doors open, but introduce more and more people to their product or to their service. Particularly when you, when the business you've created is something that comes out of a passion that you have, right? Mm-hmm. If I mm-hmm. went into, if I opened up a business and it was like, let's say, an, if I was an insurance salesman or a carpet and tile store or a cell phone store, there's an aspect of that that is like a, a larger chunk of the population needs that service, right? Yeah. So in some cases is it's, I'm doing this because I know I can, I can make a living doing this. Everyone kind of needs it, right? But if you right. open up a, a, a craft butcher and cheese shop, right? If you open up a, a like a, a, a local craft wine and beer store or like a, a vintage toy store, right? The, the level of skin you have in the game is a little different because one, it comes out of a passion that you had to begin with. And two, hopefully you're agile, right? Hopefully you're, you're, you can be smooth enough with it that, you can adjust product types. Don't get so attached to the original way you wanted to do this that you can't make an adjustment when bad mm-hmm. things happen. We don't want the bad things happen to happen, but you have to be willing to punt some idea and say, okay, that doesn't work. I'm letting that go to, to do something different in order to stay around when something like this COVID has happened. Yeah. It yeah. could come down to purely financial as well, right? Like if you're in a bad spot, and I've known people who are just in a bad spot, man, there's just no way... Like it comes down to dollars. The the you you got to pay those bills, and right. you're gonna have to go do something else. That can happen, right? But if it's right. possible that that the big ticket items don't move because you're seeing less people, then now we need smaller ticket items 
but we need a way to reach more people with those things. That might be a mail order e-commerce like solution, right? Because a lot of times in comic shops specifically, there was people would ask me why, like I don't have statues and large busts of characters in my store. And people would say, mm-hmm. oh man, we go to these other comic shops and they have like statues of like Iron Man and statues of, of, of Venom. And, and I'm like, well, retail, those things are like 700 bucks, right? Like college kids don't walk into a place and drop 700 bucks on a Venom statue. It's just not a thing. So what they right. end up being is advertisements for your store to collect dust right? You still paid for it ahead of time and you can't return it. So I had to decide no more of that. Like I can't, I can't outfit the shop in high end, you know, uh, uh, gargoyles effectively that (laughs) just collect dust and it will eventually sink me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I want to make sure we get to this question I had that I thought of while you were talking earlier. Okay. And that is this, um, this idea of being able to see yourself in something else. And so I know oh, a sure. lot of people growing up, it was like, they didn't see them. People like themselves on TV. They didn't see right. people like themselves in books. They didn't see authors like themselves, you know, et cetera. And so one of the, in preparing for this um, interview, I watched one of your other interviews and, or, and it, it was actually a, a promo for um, national comic book day. And okay. one of the things that was really interesting to me was you were promoting um, black comics and yeah. and there were so many different kinds, even within that, you know, that genre, there were so many different kinds of comics and people represented in their uh, LGBTQ characters and, yep. um, and uh, the big black stand at Attica that, that focused right. on- True story, right, exactly, biography, yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's really interesting to me that it's like seeing yourself in some of these other comics, it's like that must be really refreshing for a lot of people to be like, oh, there are people like me in these other realms, too. And and can you can you kind of talk about what people if people have mentioned that or or what you think about that or or if you've seen that sort of change over time? Yes. It's it's kind of wild, right? Like I grew up pre-internet. And, and mm-hmm. if there's one thing that I wish the comic book industry would adopt, it's the book publishing model where you can actually see an image of the creators on the back cover of your book, right? Or inside mm-hmm. back cover somewhere. Right. Because I read right. comics growing up with, that black people wrote or drew or had some part of the making of, but I had no idea that because their names weren't coded as black in my head. Right. Like Brian Stelfree is the artist for uh, the Black Panther comic. Right. Brian Stelfree has been in the comic, the industry for like 40 years. And this dude's an amazing artist. But like you hear the name Brian Stelfree's and I think it's just a guy from New York somewhere. Like I, I didn't know he was black. I didn't know he was black until maybe like, you know, 20 years ago or so that I saw that he came out of this artist collective in Atlanta, I think, with other great artists that I'm fans of. You know, like you don't you you push harder to join a fraternity or like a, a sort of a union of people when you know there's representation for yourself there, right? Otherwise, if you never see it, you don't think it's ever possible, you know? And when I was asked to write that, do that particular story, I had to think about it. I was like, okay, well, I'm trying to go with like current things on my shelves. And since things go in and out, like in comic shops, right? I had to, I had to figure out what I already had. I was a little surprised at just how much I did have, you know? And then in some cases, you know, you pull out a book and you go, I know this guy's black. And I Google the guy. Nope, he just sounds black. 
right? His name seems black, but he's not black, right? And yeah, it yeah, was yeah. like, at this point, I was actually impressed myself with, like, I know I need to have all this representation on my shelves because I also know who my customers are, right? Yeah. But when specifically asked to, like, kind of track it down and find it and do a, a report on it, it got to be like, you know what? This is cool, you know? But I, I would think it would be cooler if the, the, the black kids who come in, who pick up comics, look at them, try to figure out what they want, if they could open up, the, go to that back cover and just see, yeah. like, the bio of the people who are making these comics and to see there are more people out there making comics who look like them than they thought, that would be awesome. And it's the same for my female uh, customers, too. Like, there are times in which, like, there's a, a creator... I can think of one creator in particular whose name is coded male, right? Her name is coded male. And I know that unless uh, uh, the people who are in her audience, they can, they can kind of tell it's geared more or less towards women. But, but if they don't realize that the person making the book is also female, they might think it's just a cis white dude writing it, writing it and then I don't want it. I, I'm not really so interested. You know what I mean? And it's like, well, yeah. no, if you, if you could really get into the bios of these folks when picking up a product, like you're more informed as to who's creating them and you can make better decisions about how you want to actually support your own hobby. You know, yeah. I found that like, I couldn't find, there weren't really many black comic shop owners around the country for me to talk to when I was doing this. I was basically, if I had to get any advice, I had to get advice from other comic shop owners I've met over the years. And then, you know, the advice you're going to get is the advice largely they're willing to kind of give you, which isn't always like, you know, here's everything you need to know. It's really like, where you put your comic shop? Oh, that's like five miles away. Okay, here's what you need to know. Where you put your comic shop? Oh, that's two miles away. Well, I can I can tell you this much, right? It's that yeah, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. You get that a lot, you know. I've had people come into my shop, uh, look around, ask me a few questions, and then say to me, "Where's the owner?" And I would say, "I'm the owner." And they would go, "No, you're not." Wow. Right? And and the, the "No, you're not" comes from how could I be the owner of a business yeah. like this and be black? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's like, well, I'll, I'll, guess what? <laughs> I write the rent checks, buddy. Like, <laughs> you know, I pay the distributor. Right? I know what that tax ID number is, Mr. Man. It's definitely yeah. me, you know? And it's that, it's, the public isn't even used to dealing with a black guy who owns a comic shop in this market, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not used to that. They're used to it being like, I get that, that thing like, well, you're not like that guy from The Simpsons at all. No, no, I'm not. No, I'm, I'm in fact very much not like the guy from The Simpsons, right? I'm in no yeah. way. I'm, I'm so far removed from what you're expecting, right? That That is not what I am at all. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. And, and something that we've even talked about here in the firm that I work at is, you know, what are the steps to creating a diverse and inclusive workspace? And... I mean, I always tell people one of the biggest ones, and in my opinion, the first one is to educate yourself, you know, know what you know, know yeah. what you don't know and, and educate yourself. Um, but also it's, it's saying like, if, if we're bringing in people for an interview, because we want people, you know, any person to feel like they can work here, if we're bringing them in for an interview and giving them a tour of our space. And they see, okay, white face, white face, white face. White. Oh, there's someone brown, white face, white face. It's like, does that really make them feel yeah. like this could be a space for me? And um, yeah, yeah. And it's just, it, it is what it is. And I think that until people see that, yeah, there are 
all kinds of different people working here. It's like, oh yeah, I could picture myself working here then, and and I could really. The other the other thing sometimes too is that it's not even it's not even always that you are picturing sometimes it is yes you're picturing yourself working in a space but it's also picturing yourself being understood in a space yeah right yeah. like if it is if you if it is white face white face white face brown face white face white face white face the white faces might completely get you right but the chances that this works out for for what tends to come up in collaborative spaces that it really that the respect level do on ideas thoughts on on workflow these things, there are biases at play here that you really kind of need, that you're going to be battling for a long time, right? Yeah. And I, I think like when I was, um, I, I played drums and when I was playing in local bands and what really got me into this idea that that was something I could do and, and actually enjoy and, and, and play live for people is growing up in the 80s, it was the advent of the music video. And I'm a metalhead, right? I'm a big metal guy. And when I would come across... Uh, either music videos or visuals of bands where I could see the band and to see that there were black members playing metal, right? Like the, the, the ideas that the, 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 the drive that I had to practice a little more, right? Like, like this mm. isn't something alien. I'm not invading a space, right? I'm mm. reminded that this is also my space, right? Yeah. Because like, I don't, I, I, one time I bought a, um, I bought a suicidal tendencies album and I had not, Really, I'd seen some pictures of like the lead singer Mike Muir, right? Um, but I'd not seen a picture of Rocky George. I didn't know that who Rocky George was. But there's there's this pudgy brother, like on lead guitar, wearing like an old style Pittsburgh Pirates hat, right? And I'm like, holy wait, wait, wait! Wow. This the this this legendary band Suicidal Tendencies now has a black guitar player. What? Right? I didn't know bands like Fishbone existed, in which they were like. Black dudes from LA playing like ska punk metal. I didn't know King's X from Texas was a thing. Who's like a, their bass player, Doug Pinnock, I think is originally from Joliet, right? But like is yeah. is an incredible voice and bass player and playing like the, the best rock music. And and when you see that, while you're trying to enter into an arena that the, the machinery tells you to stay out, right? Yeah. But the yeah. artists are saying, get in here. Right. In any kind of situation like that, you are more likely to take that chance. Right. And to push through because, you know, there is a place for you there. Right. Yeah. Because a lot of yeah. what we're seeing every day is going to be a message that there isn't a place. for you. And if there's a place for you, you got to shut up and be quiet and like kind of just just take this paycheck. You know, oh, you have ideas. Do you run those past George? Yeah. Right. You run those past Stan. Right. And then, you know, well, you got a good one. Sure. It'll float up to the top. Don't worry about it. You know, yeah. there's a lot of that, you know? Yeah. 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 It seems like it's a little more of the, like, be grateful that you're here rather than being able to, like you said, collaborate and to uh, add to what what's there and to be heard and to be able to lead. And the, the, some of that is also like kind of cultural, right? It's, it's familial. It's uh, how many of us have had like parents who have told us that the way to actually get ahead is to like put your head down and work, 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 work as hard mm -hmm. as you possibly can. You will be recognized like because that's what they were told to do. And it's the only way they can tell you how to do a thing. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then you, you, you yeah. get to a point where you're like, wait a second. Hold on a minute. Right. Like I also see what happens if I work, 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 work. And I keep my nose at the grindstone and I toe the line. I can see exactly where the disrespect is 
yeah. right? Like this, this is a problem. And now we're like, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, and I'm like, to me, I feel like my generation is definitely the like speak out, trust no one generation, right? <laughs> but like now, I see kids coming up now where the default is no longer that you're just there to get the paycheck. Hopefully, you get noticed, right? The default is I have something to offer, yeah. right? As much as anybody else here does, let's do this or let me go, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's right. that thing. So now right. we, we're looking for spaces where we know we fit, where we have where we have a better idea we fit, right? Because you're not, I mean, uh-huh. I, I wouldn't want to be in a creative endeavor where everyone looked exactly the same. I wouldn't right. want to be in a creative endeavor. It's creative, right? I, I can't be in a creative endeavor where everyone has the exact same experience. Like I can, sure, I can work with people from the neighborhood I grew up with, but only the people in the neighborhood I grew up with. Like that doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? You know? Yeah. How could you have a creative right. endeavor with everybody went to the same college you went to? Right. You know, that's weird. <laughs> Where does that yeah. get you? Yeah, that's uh, really good things to think about there. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I've I've learned a lot, and a lot about comics, and a lot about other things. I'll definitely be emailing you some interest so you can put together yeah, a package. Yeah, do it. Uh, <laughs> I'm interested to see what, what I end up with. I'm really <laughs> so, and uh, have you read any comics ever? Not a single one. Okay, I this mean, is like, great. Okay. Like, like not Sunday comics. I've sure, sure. Ever. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 This is uh, fine. I, okay. yeah. <laughs> I do want to make sure before we go that people know how to find you. So if you can tell us where to find you. I know you said you have the brick and mortar store, but that's pretty limited yep. right now. So sure. In this well, the store is, yeah, yeah. So if you, if you are coming to the store, it's fine. Um, I'm there Tuesday through Saturday, we're Tuesday through Saturday. Um, the it's third coast comics at 6443 North Sheridan road in Chicago in Rogers park neighborhood, right on Loyola university's campus. Uh, if you want to like inquire about a chef's choice thing, just email me at Terry, T-E-R-R-Y at thirdcoastcomics.com, all spelled out. And then we'll just work out what it is you need and, and I'll get it to you. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solution Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.